Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. And that was one of the things I said, you know, print the menu every day. Just that simple thing is a huge thing because you're, you're not like forced into serving something that isn't the way you want it to be. If it's not the way you want it to be, you just take it off the menu. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Cal Peternell was the head chef of legendary Bay Area restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California for over 20 years, where he served celebrity patrons and trained a new generation of chefs. He's the New York Times bestselling author of 12 Recipes and the author of a recent book, Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta. On this episode, we hear some good Chez Panisse stories and about Cal's recent move to the East Coast. We also talk about his cookbook career and what's next. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Cal Peter now. I wanted to have you on. We were vibing at the Brooklyn Book Festival, you yeah. and I on a panel. Yeah. And it was I was like, I don't know you. I just like know of you and I know your work and your cookbooks and 12 recipes, burnt toast, but I didn't know you. You're a cool dude. I like this. Thanks. Yeah, that was a fun panel, too. It was great. and In so, the pouring rain, do you remember? It was just absolutely pouring. We were supposed to do it outside with a big tent in front of Borough Hall. It's like the greatest backdrop. They gave us the big stage, and then we got shoved in, like, another room. Yeah, great to talk about books with, uh, you know, a kind of a full room. <laughs> yeah. But, like, let's talk about you. Now, you attended SVA um, before you were in the food world, and I wanted to get a sense of New York City food when you were a student at SVA. Mm -hmm. What was that like? It was like um, pea soup and french fries at the diner. And What year uh, are we talking? We're talking 80, mid-80s. Pea soup at the diner. I mean, mid-80s New York is like, and to like around Giuliani, it's like absolutely coveted right now by like millennials and Gen Z. It was amazing. I, uh, I lived in the East Village on 9th between B and C, which was a different world uh, then. Tompkins Square Park was, you know, sort of a no-go zone sometimes at yeah. night. And um, the, there was uh, – the galleries were all popping up in the East Village and there was cool bars and mm-hmm. and I was broke like students are. And, yeah, I ate at the diners. I would get soup and French fries. I'd go over to Mamoon's, but it was, it's not really the neighborhood, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Slices. Was Lucy's open then on A? I don't think so. Probably, probably that's more like like late nineties. Yeah. Um, was there like any meal? Because I'm I'm setting this up because you were a visual artist. You were in art school. You weren't a chef, and you ended up being a chef. But there's was there a food memory from that era that you just like sticks with you? Well, I was working in restaurants, uh, Got it. but as a, a front of the house, I was a waiter or um, a bartender. So I. You know, I was, like, picking up on the food that was happening in the restaurants where I was working as a waiter and then, you know, going home and trying to sort of recreate some of those things or uh, talking to the chefs and asking them, you know, about the dishes and stuff, which sometimes worked and some chefs just didn't want to talk to the waiters. Were these places, like, no-name places, or were they were they pretty cool? Like, were they worth mentioning? Um, I worked at this place called Meridis. It was on um, 7th Avenue South, right where Grove Street comes in. It's like this wedge of a space. Yeah. It's still there. It became uh, Fuddruckers for a while. Yeah. And now I – last time I went by, it was not anything. Blast from the past, Fuddruckers. Yeah, that, right? Yeah. Uh, and I just – it was kind of fancy, sort of goofy – kind of struggling a little bit. They were trying out different things. I remember mm-hmm. there was a dessert that had um, like this swirl, like this creme fraiche or uh, creme anglaise with like a raspberry 
coolie that then they like you know dragged a knife through so it looked like this crazy pattern oh yeah Th- that was like from the birth of like deconstructed dessert <laughs> <Yeah>. you know <laughs> and you would you would bring out two plates one had the 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 swirly on it and the other one had this little fruit tart and you'd put the swirly plate down first and then so they could see it you yeah know? and then you would carefully uh, put the tart on which was not easy because it would slide around but I remember this one guy I put down the um I put down the swirly plate and he was like, I don't know if he's trying to show off for his friends or something. And he was like, look at this amazing plate. Who makes this? And he turned it over to see the. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, he was wearing the, yeah. the, the yeah. creme anglaise. All, yeah. all over him. But yeah, it was kind of beautiful. But beautiful. Like it was interactive dining. Yeah. We're building towards your 25 plus years running the kitchen at Chez Panisse and like being influential in the field. But I, I'm we're going back before you get into the professional kitchen. You're in Italy. Yeah. And you're there with your wife, an artist as well, and you start kind of messing around in the kitchen. Is that right? Yeah, I was, you know, I was poking my head again into kitchens. I wasn't working and we were we were uh, both working as um, we were restoring frescoes in a private home, uh, which was alternately exhilarating and fascinating and then deadly boring. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were just eating the great food that there was, the chickens from the rotisserie truck, um, learning how to work with, like, artichokes. I was going into – there was a there was a restaurant near where we lived called Vipore, which was run by Cesare Caselli. Do you yeah, know of course. Um, the rosemary in the pocket. Exactly. Love this Cesare. This was way back then, right, in the 80, late 80s. Young man at that point. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was his parents' restaurant, and he was, like, the young chef there. And we would go – we would walk over there in the evening and uh, to get to buy wine because they would sell us wine. We couldn't really afford to eat there, but uh, they would always give us a little snack mm-hmm. and a really cold glass of prosecco, and um, and we would say hi to Cesare and poke our heads into the kitchen and look at their how they're grilling their bistecca <laughs> fiorentina and stuff. And so you know, I just opened up to the idea of of food and the way it's integrated into everyone's lives there. I kind of feel like in Italy at that time anyway, there's no – like to call someone a foodie no. would be just sort of redundant. Like everyone lived with food all the time. Yeah. Even, I mean in America it was pre-foodie even. But like in Italy, of course, it was embedded in the culture yeah. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Chessery, one of the nicest men in all of food. Such a nice guy and does this great work upstate now with – um, I think with kids with disabilities, he does. maybe. Yeah, he does, and it's a great reminder to email him to get him on the show because uh, right. great, great guy. Yep. Okay, so you 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 end up in the Bay Area, and you're at Shea, and we could get into your history of how you found Shea Benice, but from the jump, I want to know, like, is there like a favorite two or three year period you worked there out of the 25 years or plus that you worked there? Like the time when you're like, yeah, that was like when we were in our groove. Or maybe it was just a time when you were having the most fun. I think the um, – I mean I had f- fun throughout uh, and made a lot of connections and learned a lot. Um, but for a while I was the sous chef in the cafe mm-hmm. and um, – and, you know, the cafe is the upstairs, sort of more casual place. But that was such a great gig. It's the gig that um, I think everybody wants who really loves to cook. And it was a it was a nine to five um, ish uh, thing where I would run the prep kitchen and we would make the all the food for like the braises and the soup and the things that needed to be made ahead, the raviolis and things like that for the cafe that evening. But it was just it. Was, you weren't a line cook. Um, it was like you were cooking with really passionate people in your really great home, home kitchen, getting ready for like the best dinner party. Except it was for you know fifty people, yeah, uh, or fifty of each thing. But um, yeah, those were really good days. And um, you know, we had a pretty robust like internship program and people coming and staging. And so I was meeting new people and teaching people and learning from people. It was great. I bet. Now, of course, it all starts with Alice Waters. Yep. But it also is you for 25 years um, instilling this culture that has been well documented. But I want to know, like, high level, we look at Chez Panisse, Berkeley, California restaurant. We, we, we still, to this day, it's one of our most important restaurants in America. Why? I think because, you know, what I think what Alice... 
and did and inspired in other people to do uh, who worked at Chez Panisse has been much sort of copied, right? And it's sort of hackneyed now. Farm to Table has lost a lot of its potency. But back then, um, we really were doing something – that not a lot of other restaurants were doing. And they were they were sort of coming on board. Um, but even now, I think that they're still doing something really different f- from other places that are doing a sort of similar kind of cuisine. I mean, they have a farm that grows just pretty much just for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was before, you know, Stone Barns and that whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... We and and because of where it is, I mean, you just had access to the to the, really the best produce that I've seen anywhere, uh, and and that there was a passionate group of people who believed in, who got so excited when the first box of apricots came in, or when we started getting nettles again from up in Bolinas, and. Uh, mm-hmm. And because there was a connection to all those farms and we would visit them, people really believed in it and they treated things with uh, respect and and sort of delight. Uh, and I'm sure and I hope it still happens, but it wasn't happening a lot, I think, before that. No. Is it the handwritten menu daily? Is it like the daily menu? I feel that's part of Shay's. Well, that's a big thing. And I remember going – I was just thinking about this because I was – I went to a slow food event and I was trying to remember when it was the Terra Madre. Have you ever gone to the no. in Torino? Big gathering, international gathering. And I was in a little breakout group and talking to these chefs from Kenya. And they were trying to figure out how they worked in hotels. And they were trying to figure out how to get more of the local produce in and to be more kind of uh, nimble around that. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things I said, you know, print the menu every day. Yeah. That is just a – just that simple thing is is a huge thing because – if it turns out uh, that the nettles don't show up, then you can just take that off the pizza. Or if, you know, you do, you decide to uh, – you're, you're not, like, forced into serving something that isn't the way you want it to be. If it's not the way you want it to be, you just take yeah. it off the menu. It's also, like, a forced deadline for the day, right? Because, yeah. like, you have you, – you, like, take me through your day when you're you're rolling in at what time. And when does that menu actually get written? Sure. The menu, I would usually write the menu the night before, but leave things open. Uh, And then, you know, I'd roll in at like, I don't know, seven. There'd be somebody who had already been there for about half an hour. Uh, There was a um, sort of entry-level position that we called the garmanger there, which um, is sort of receiving and putting things away and making staff meal, making stocks, things like that. and then they would give me a list of what was left over and what's in the walk-ins. Mm-hmm. And I would look at my list of what's coming in and plug those things in. And, you know, I love to do pu- puzzles. I do crossword puzzles all the time. Yeah. And um, we had this, like, template. And it was like a puzzle, you know. Yeah. Everything had to fit into its square. There was four entrees. There was two yeah. pizzas. There was four salads. You didn't want to repeat ingredients too much. I loved the putting that puzzle together, yeah. knowing that, like, we have this and we're getting this and we have a little of that delicious thing left over, that braised beef that we can we can chop it up and mix it with some butter yeah. and herbs and make it into the ravioli, ravioli. filling for tonight. Ravioli is just, like, the perfect vehicle for, like, leftover proteins. Yeah. And you can do anything with it. So let's let's be clear. You're, you're rolling at 7 a.m. What time did you leave the night before? 7. Yeah, it was a 12-hour thing. But— um, part of Alice's genius uh, that kept people like me around for 22 years was I would just do three of those days a week. Mm-hmm. So I had a co-chef. So I would do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 12-hour days. But then Thursday was kind of flexible day, just kind of handing off information to my co-chef. I'd have Friday and Saturday off. Peace out weekend, go, you know, go totally surfing off. or something, yeah. And then Sunday, another flexible day. And if yeah. you needed, you could kind of be like, hey, can I phone it in on that? day that's on the cusp so I can have a three-day weekend. And um, <laughs> if you could arrange things right, me and my co-chef Russell Moore for a while. Oh, would, yeah, Russell Moore, sure. You know, Russ, of, yeah. of course, yeah. Uh, Author we, of ours as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Camino, right? Yeah. Um, Camino book, yeah. He, Is that right? Camino, right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Camino restaurant, Allison and Russell. R.I.P., man. Um, what a cool restaurant that was. I know. Dope I, restaurant. Wow. Right? All the, fu- all the way he would cook on 
fire. I mean, the space, like, that was like a football field. Yeah. And then they had the big hearth Huge there. Huge hearth and oh. all the little trivets and little pots he'd have Love going and things spinning on strings. And What's up with Russell Moore? What's amazing. he up to these days? He's, uh, I just saw him. He came out to um, Jersey for to celebrate my birthday. I turned 60 in February. Oh, so wow, cool. Russ and Allison came out. Uh, and I'm going to see him next week. Uh, he's actually going to pick me up from the airport and we're going to go see... Um, we're the best. I guess it's a punk coming of age movie. Okay. And then get dumplings. Oh. He cool. um he and his wife Allison, after they closed Camino, they opened uh, the Kebabery. Mm-hmm. It was a much more casual counter service place that yep. served different kebabs and lots of great salads. And they kept that going and they moved it to a new location. And now they're they've closed that down, uh, and sold that um, business and they're making vinegar. They make delicious red and rosé vinegar. And um, I think they're looking what's next. Awesome. I, I will be following those guys because I love that. Yep. So back to you and, and Chez Panisse. When you're working there, I mean, there's lots of folks that came out of that kitchen that you were running who have written cookbooks, some of them bigger than others, who have been on television. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of our – so I – and I, I, I got to ask, like, just drop some names because for our listeners – we got to, like, build this more. I mean, Chipanese is, like, the – it's the absolute center of food in America for years and years. Yeah, it really was. And the diaspora is huge. Yeah, huge. Um, yeah, there's uh, there's Samin Nusrat, of course. Of course. Samin, starts um, with Samin Nusrat, of course. Uh, amazing uh, teacher and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and cook. Uh, there's the – I'm going tonight to Tamar Adler's um, – Party? You're going to that party? I was invited, and I cannot make it, unfortunately. I I love Tamara Adler. Me too. So her new book, um, The Everlasting Meal Cookbook, just came out, and um, she's talking tonight with another Chez Panisse alum, um, Andy Baragani. Sure. Uh, And... um, I mean, I, you know, the list is is enormous. Those are those are definitely some. some Those are some of the young stars. Those are some of the young stars. if you read United States of Arugula, you can get some of the old stars. Uh-huh. That book rules. I don't know if you've read that. Uh, I have, yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Waxman down yeah. here. Um, great, great guy, great Gil- restaurant. That's the, that's the old school right there. There's one yeah. of the old school guys. And Gilbert Pilgrim, who has Zuni Restaurant yeah. in San Francisco. And, um, you know, David Tannis, who wrote for The Times for right. for years. So many, so many great people. Yeah, it's 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 a real who's who. And, and I feel like we could... Definitely do like a family tree and taste at one point. That'd be fun. Yeah. Were you around during that that David Chang spat with Alice and that the fig on a plate? Thing? Yeah, like, like tell me about that. What, how does that um, yeah, I I I couldn't really understand what that was. What was the point of that? Honestly, I mean, uh, if you've been to Chez Panisse and ordered the hmm. uh, peach that you can order for dessert. Um, you know, if you didn't like that, then I don't know. There's something maybe you don't really like food that much or yeah. something. I mean, a perfectly beautifully ripe peach. Uh, I don't know that we ever did the figs on a plate, which was his. Uh, yeah, to recap, David Ching and, and others in the New York City uh, food uh, community uh, kind of rallied around this idea that, you know, Shea and some of these Berkeley and Bay Area restaurants and maybe even L.A. who have the great weather and the produce were just serving figs on a plate. Right. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I guess I'll push back a little bit Please. and just say that, uh, you know, having just moved to I live in New Jersey now after 30 years in the Bay Area, I could see how you might be kind of bitter about how you can't get stuff that's as beautiful as you can yeah. in California. And like, sure, you can, you got to put a bunch of butter on those figs and roast them with, um, <laughs> I don't know, sugar. Brown and, sugar, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think when you when you do a February in, in the east on the East Coast, and, and this is his comment was before Instagram, but you're, like, looking at the restaurants on the West Coast. You're like, man, yeah. the citrus season. That was oh. just sour figs. Sour figs. Uh, one more question about Shay. Do you talk to Alice? Like, how's she doing? Yeah, I just uh, was out there. I saw her. We had a drink in December. She's doing good. You know, it's been a hard year. We've lost a lot of... Um, People from the Femi Panisse, as they, mm-hmm. as um, she calls it, um, a couple of great friends who worked there for years, uh, and then a couple of dear friends of hers, um, David Lance Goins, who's a uh, an artist and illustrator, and did lots of the posters, the beautiful Japanese posters for years, and then Tom Luddy. I don't know if you know. No, he's a film guy. They actually honored him at the Oscars at the end. You know, mm. they have the in memoriam section. Yeah. And 
there's a picture of him. He started the Telluride Film Festival and was a big part of the Pacific Film Archive. And um, so I was he a customer, a guest? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So he was like one of your uh, all the time, and yeah. so was David Goins. And yeah, um, I don't know if you know the author Greil Marcus, who's written quite a lot about Bob Dylan and. Uh, rock and roll, and he lost a daughter tragically recently. So it's been kind of hard. Um, I'm going to actually be out there next week, and I hope to see Alice and mm-hmm. you know give her a hug. Give her a hug. And yeah, that's. I'm sorry to hear that. That's that's yeah. tough to hear about the loss of your friends and 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 the faithful. I mean, yeah. it is a bit of a community. Thanks. There was a great great friend, great personality. The wine yeah. buyer, a guy named Jonathan Waters, who. Mm. Uh, was a wonderful man, and we we lost him last uh, last year as well. So, um, you moved out. You moved moved to the East Coast. Yeah, you moved to Jersey. You just referenced that. You living on a farm, New I'm, Jersey. Yeah, I'm living not on a farm. Although I grew up on a farm. Okay, in New Jersey. you grew up on a farm, and it's close to where I moved yeah. to, which is sort of a coincidence. Which yeah. absolutely is a coincidence. I didn't move back there because I'm from there. We live like in a little house uh, on a dirt road. Yeah, we live like in the country. Yeah, we have a stream that runs right by our house, which kind of froze a couple times this hmm. this winter, which was exciting. Um, it's beautiful, but it is. Uh, I certainly do miss my um, my East Bay community. You know, thirty years, you get pretty deep mm-hmm. roots and uh, lots of dear friends, and also raising kids there. You know, yeah. we have three kids, so. That kind of really sinks your roots in, and um, uh, it's been amazing to you know. Like I said, I'm going there next week, and I've been texting my friends. I'm I'm coming, and they haven't forgotten me, and they're all still wanting. Great to, feeling when your friends don't forget, right? You. Yeah. yeah, and they still are like, we're having dinner. We're yeah. you know, there's uh. dinner parties already in works, but it does make me realize what I left behind, and and I'm trying to take it as inspiration to build a new community here. Yeah. Uh, and it takes a long time and it's, it's a little harder when you don't have like say kids in school because it's, that's kind of a, yeah. a way to meet people. Uh, but I'm finding new ways and, uh, I'm being more intentional about it, which feels kind of funny. Yeah. I, some days I feel like I'm like, um, you know, a, a first grader on the, on the playground saying like, Will you be my friend? Yeah, making friends that I'm, I'm in my 40s, you're just turned 60, yeah. I've moved to a new community as well in the Catskills or the Hudson Valley, and I feel similar. Like, you have to be super intentional about meeting people, and it's yeah. challenging. Which is good, maybe, that you're intentional about it. I think uh, so. I think it's good. Now, what about grocery shopping? Like, big culture shock for you to, like, yes. go to the grocery store, to go to the shop right now that you have to, like, find all your groceries? Well, the shop right is actually... On the higher end of oh, the definitely. options. <laughs> yeah, no shade on the shop right. I, 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 yeah, but when you can't even find a shop right, well, it's tough. luckily, you know, we arrived in the summer, and uh, oh, it's probably did. like this in the Hudson Valley. There's like at the end of everyone's driveway, there's a little farm stand on yeah. a box thing with tomato with definitely. amazing tomatoes and zucchinis and cucumbers and and eggplant. Um, so we absolutely took advantage of that. We bought all our eggs and everything from those kind of stands. And then we did find there's Phillips Farm that I think comes into the, um, mm-hmm. to Union the Green Square. Market. Yeah. yeah. And um, they have a farm store that's quite close to us. So we we pretty much have eaten everything. All the produce we eat comes from Phillips Farm. Shout out to mm. them. Yeah, Great definitely. place, great um, produce. But now – you know they don't have it. Yeah, it's there's like, no farm. Yeah. There's no year-round farmers markets in the in, in this area. No, there's a there's one now that's nearby that's every other Sunday. Yeah, and you know what? Phillips is down to like celery roots, carrots, onions, and they sell other produce, but it's not stuff yeah. they grow. You know. So so how do you adjust? How do you as a as a cook? And you're probably cooking a lot of food too because there aren't a ton of restaurants by by you. Right. Absolutely. I'm yeah. cooking all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm adjusting in the way people do. I use a little, people do here. I use a little more butter maybe yeah, than yeah. I used to. Uh, <laughs> I'm sending away to get the olive oil that I need. Yeah. Um, and. Are you a fat gold guy? Uh, no, I'm using, um, on the regular I use the California olive ranch. I yeah, think it's that's the one it. I use at the, the grocery store. Absolutely. Just for sauteing. Yep, yep, yep. And then a friend hooked me up with a bottle of, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was really good for, you know. Salads, yeah, yeah, cool, on. cool, cool. Um, you know, one thing that's exciting where we are and everywhere in America is that there's so many little breweries making great beer, right? So 
every town, every city has like a brewery and people can make it happen. And it's not, you know, it's not the same obviously for wine because it's not everywhere is not a great wine growing place. And also wine takes a bigger capital and time investment. Um, So we found some great places to go get beers uh, that are local, that are, that are great. And we can find our way to celebrate the local cool. uh, producers that way. Yeah. I think the craft brewing in the, on the East coast and like our little pocket that we live in is, is fantastic. It's like some of the best in the country. Yeah. It's wonderful beers. Let's talk about 12 recipes. I think this book that you wrote, you, we can talk about uh, burnt, burnt toast as well, but 12 mm-hmm. recipes, it's a cool idea. You wrote a book about 12 fun- foundational recipes. It was for your son, mm-hmm. your daughter. It was um, for my oldest kid, uh, Hop, who was leaving, you know, getting ready to kind of move out. I I don't think it was when they were going to college, but it was like the Uh year after the second year. And um, they were like, hey, this summer, can we go through the recipes that we love to cook at home? Not the restaurant stuff, just the home stuff that we love, pasta, roasted chicken, salad, stuff like that. And we did. And um, they went off and they started calling me like, what what temperature am I supposed to put the oven on again? And I was like, you know, I'm going to write this. St- I was glad they were cooking and I was yeah. glad they were calling me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but I was like, I'm just going to make you a little cookbook just to, from me to you. And we can share it with your siblings too. And um, It was that simple. Yeah. I was, was like, like uh, that. I just like 12 recipes where you can kind of put things together in different ways and make meals. Because I just... I wanted them to be able to cook and feed themselves well, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I started to write it, and I thought, you know, other people are going to need this book as well. And it became. I got an agent, and I, and I, I got a, a deal. But as I wrote the book, it was really helpful to remember, to constantly remind myself that that's the voice I want the book to be in, is, is a dad who is encouraging their kid to cook for themselves, mm-hmm. knowing that their kid has a limited budget, they have a little galley kitchen, mm-hmm. they have they probably are shopping at like the bodega. Um, so don't worry about all that. You can still cook. Like sure, if you have a like crappy pan or mm-hmm. you have an electric stove or it's fine. Like you can try to, you know, find better stuff as you go forward, but don't let it stop you from cooking now. It's a book that my 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 friend Daniel Holzman and co-author of Food IQ, it's his favorite book. Oh, Your wow. book. Like we talk when we were writing Food IQ, we would go back to 12 recipes. Oh. Uh, and just be like, this is like um a style, a vibe, a model that we so I love your book. It's great. Thank you. And that one was also fun for me to write because it allowed me to I food is like a mnemonic device for me. And yeah. it it triggered memories and little stories, and I tried to include those in the introductions. Burnt Toast is more about essays, right? And, like, kind of uh, more of, like, thoughts on uh, – describe it yourself because I, I'm having a trouble describing it myself. Well, you know, Burnt Toast is the fourth book, and yeah. so by the time I got to that book, I was moving towards wanting to write um, more uh, stories. Yeah, exactly. And so I just thought, you know, I'm just going to go for it in this book and I'm going to write the stories I want to write and they'll all tie into food because doesn't everything tie into food really on some level? Yeah. Um, and I I came about the concept though for that book because, because you know, I did live in this uh, charmed life of access to incredible food uh, in the Bay Area and working at, at Chez Panisse. But sometimes I would leave that little paradise and then you had to kind of learn to cook again, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, one time I was visiting my folks in, in South Carolina and, uh, I, you know, I always cook for them and they said, what do you want to cook? And I said, I was like, you know, my thing is I go to the market <laughs> and I see what's beautiful. Yeah, of course. Uh, you said that so many times, like, t- to, you know, on microphones and yeah. it's part I of your – Yeah. And uh, – and they were like, uh-huh. And, um, but, you know, what happens if you go to the market and there's nothing that's really that beautiful and inspiring? And um, the, the answer, part of the answer is you're not going to the right market and you can dig and dig and find mm-hmm. grow some stuff and you can find better stuff. But what if you just have to make do with what you've got there? And or what if you made a mistake like you, you burnt it? Or you overcooked the pasta or the rice, or someone else made a mistake, like 
they raised this beautiful chicken, but then they sealed it up in this plastic thing, and it's mm-hmm. been sitting in there for a long time, and now it's like, meh. You know, it's not bad. But, yeah. Uh, the the working title of the book was Bad Food Good. I know, and and you said that in the panel, and I'm like, that's great. I thought that was good, too, but my publisher was like, no, the people are going to think it's rotten food. Um, Fair enough, like, but okay. you could sell it, though. Anyways, that's you made a good title. For- I, yeah. I had my doubts about the title, so I was willing to, like, move on. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, you and I actually it. liked the title it's that great. we came up with. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that book came out of that. Like, what yeah. if you what if you need to you need to fix it? And sometimes you need to fix something that isn't food-related with food, like you – like you need to apologize or you need to celebrate or yeah. something. And uh, food, you know, the right food can help you out yeah. with that too. So you're you're in Jersey. You're looking at the kind of landscape. Do you ever get that itch about opening a restaurant, thinking about that? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I have more than an itch. Uh, Breaking some news here. Let's go. <laughs> so, you know, the reason we moved out to New Jersey is because my wife, uh, the artist Kathleen Henderson, is um, has worked for years uh, with folks with developmental disabilities, uh, helping them make art and find the art that's in them that they need to make. Uh, she did that at Creative Growth in Oakland for 10 years. And then um, we found um, someone who wanted to invest in a new studio like mm-hmm. that uh, here in Frenchtown, New Jersey. And... Um, and so we went, we decided to go for it. The timing was right. Our youngest kid was going off to college mm-hmm. and, um, and the, the, the support was in place. So we moved there and she and our oldest kid, Hop, uh, and Hop's girlfriend, Lydia, opened Studio Route 29 in Frenchtown. It's an amazing space. It's people, a family business too. It's a That's family so business cool. and people can come and make films, make paintings, make textile works and, um, there's a youth program and it's amazing and it's funded for now, but we need more funding sources. Uh, and uh, a local, uh, the, actually the person that's funding that project bought an inn, mm. uh, the Frenchtown Inn, right in Frenchtown, which is a block away from her project, which is Art Yard, which is like a art incubation and uh, theater space. Mm-hmm. And she thought, you know, it'd be great to have a really great restaurant right by my <laughs> my galleries and theater for after the performance or before the before the performance and so she bought it and she, but she didn't want to run it and she didn't have anybody to run it she asked me a couple times I was and gonna I said, say no. like maybe when they hired your wife and there was like there maybe that was in the back of their well head. it kind of went the other way actually they first wanted me to run the the Frenchtown Inn. We came out to that look at it. That was the first recruitment email. Yep. Got it. My wife and I came out to look at it. I was like, you know, I'm burnt out on restaurants right yeah. now. I can't really do it. Uh, but meanwhile, my wife started talking to Jill mm-hmm. and uh, they cooked up this other plan. And that plan came to fruition and I came along. She asked me a couple more times, do you want to run the restaurant? I was like, not ready. Uh, but in December... We cooked up a new plan that's that's not in you know set in concrete yet, but it's looking good. Mm-hmm. And that is that the restaurant will um, I'll op- I'll open the restaurant, I'll run the uh, the menu, and I'll sort of be the spirit of the place, and we'll get people to help with the things that I'm not so good at mm-hmm. business stuff. Mm-hmm. All the profits will go to Studio Route 29. That's wonderful. So it's sort of like running as a as a nonprofit nonprofit restaurants, um, which there's a few in the in the country that are quite successful. And there can be like interaction with. We'll obviously we'll display the artwork of the artist at Studio Route 29 upstairs. Uh, there's there's not rooms uh, to stay in, but in some of the but they're still there. Um, and so we're going to make a gallery out of one of those. Mm. And we'll be doing events around um, around the artist at, at Studio Route 29. So I was finally uh, wooed. And, Love that. Uh, we're hoping for late summer. Late summer. There you go. So how old's the inn? Does it have like an old history? It's like 1830. Yeah. Uh, it's gone through several iterations. It's exciting. Uh, it did at some point, you know, have rooms and yeah. people stayed there, even lived there. Uh, they used to call it, there was three in the town 
Um, and there's only two left because the one in the middle burnt down in a fire, you know, 100 years ago or something. But they were called the upper, the middle, and the lower. Okay. And the French Island is the lower. It's right by the river. And are you going to keep the name or is that to be determined? Uh, yeah, that's TBD. TBD. Um, more questions. Late summer opening, not bad. Like, you know, produce is pretty popping in that area and like Labor Day. Yeah, but you probably know how it is. Like you shoot for late summer. Oh, yeah, you shoot for late summer, and you're, like, barely doing holiday parties exactly. for friends and family. <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. Have you been up to Stissing House in the Hudson Valley? No, but I want to go. You know, tomorrow's doing an event yeah. there. Uh, no, great. I've heard great things Terrific. about it. Terrific. Uh, Claire is an amazing chef, and, and uh, that place is an old inn as well. So I'm She thinking, has a restaurant here, yeah, too, King right? King and yeah. Jupiter. So she has two right. restaurants here and her partners. But um, Yeah, no, I need to go up and check it out yeah. because, you know. So what is in your mind now? You're thinking menu development, Mm -hmm. you know, what, like, I know nothing's set in stone, but, like, what would you want to open with, Um, dishes-wise? You know, I'm taking some inspiration, certainly from the Chez Panisse Cafe. Yeah, Um, obviously. And from my own short-lived restaurant, I had a restaurant for a minute that before that thing, the pandemic uh, came along Ah. and crushed it, uh, that was called The Lead. Um... Small menu, um, uh, you know, again, you know, printed definitely in-house so that we're very nimble. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really looking forward to making, starting relationships with all the local farmers and producers of uh, beer. There's distillers. There's mm-hmm. even some wine that I haven't tried yet, but yeah. we'll see. But there's Shout certainly, out Jersey wine. I'm sure it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's certainly lots of uh, growers. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, produce forward. Mediterranean yeah. um, uh, menu that's fun, and we have a big bar, so it's going to be bar-focused as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try and keep the the prices at a place where it's not it's not like the special event place that you just go once a year. Yeah, I mean, with a 501c3 status, too, you probably have uh, ability to maybe— keep the prices at a, at a good level and also of course you've got the it's it's more of a, a statement when you dine with you it's, yeah it's I, we probably won't actually get the 501c3 yeah. status because that is really an yeah. onerous task i, I know right yeah because my wife just did it uh and yeah. she's got it so that's good but but the story to tell is mm-hmm. that the is that the profits are going to support these artists and uh great and that's going to be a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Cal, we ask all guests in the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this book, what would that be? I think it was it would be this dream that I've had for a while of um, a cookbook. Uh, it came to me while I was writing Burnt Toast because I have a chapter in there called Hacking Packages. Mm-hmm. And... A combination of that and seeing the the folks that um, that my wife works with, people with autism or or Downs or other kind of disabilities, uh, I I would love to be a part of a cookbook that um, you know packaged food is important for people with uh, limited abilities to cook, and so is the microwave. Um, so I would love a project that is is. Um, the audience is folks with disabilities, but as you know, I'm as a person who doesn't have a disability. I don't really think I'm the one to write that, but I could be the one to facilitate yeah. that. And and I have access to to people through my wife's projects and through I, I do. I've always did lots of work with uh, Creative Growth back in Oakland to bring those people in and and. Uh, I think it could be a a, bu- a helpful cookbook, but also really beautiful and fun and spirited. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would love to do it. Yeah. And I've I've gotten some interest from some friends in publishing, so maybe that'll happen one day. Maybe that one day will happen. And you're yeah. working on some fiction, too. Yeah. I'm also writing um, a novel. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a, a – people tell me to describe it, and I've been saying it's sort of a, a – Queer culinary melodrama. Yeah, right on. It sounds like something that like maybe the Bears producers could pick up and yeah, there you go. You know, make yeah, it. If you're make listening it a, out there. You know, oh yeah, they they certainly are. Yeah, Cal Peter, now thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. What a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Asim Alkani, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. 
Last time I saw you, you were working in your restaurant, and I was dining, and we were all having a great time, and it was busy. Yeah, it is busy every night. I mean, you have been in the scene for a while. When I get into your story, you opened the restaurant, Sofrey, when you were 59 years old, and you've been running it, and, you're, and you, you have many projects, including a new cookbook. Let me ask you about the, the state of the restaurant reservation in New York. Um, just had a guest on just now. We were talking about how he was frustrated by not being able to book at restaurants. And I was kind of like, well, you know, you got to look on the other side. There's like a real supply and demand issue and restaurants are having staffing issues. Well, how do you how do you handle it when you have 700 people on your waiting list? I try not to look at it. It gets me anxious. Uh, but at the same time, many of these notify lists doesn't mean much, especially for us. We are in Brooklyn. People really want to come to Sofre. And they really want to make a reservation come. But at the end of the day, if Resi notifies them for something which is around the corner in Manhattan or somewhere, they definitely take, because this is what notify means. Yep. They give you like five minutes to, to right. take it. We've not. all been there. I mean, listeners, we've all know Resi notify. You literally had 700 people on the list last night. Not last night. Uh, over weekend we had uh, 700, no, but about 400. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Last night number was 400. Wow. So, I mean... To our listeners who are frustrated that they can't get into great restaurants like Sofre, how do you respond to that? They get very annoyed and sometimes they write very angry emails that, you know, especially our community, Iranians, we are not used to making reservations. Yeah. Um, so our manager does a good job. He has a very kind note. He explains that we are a small restaurant, 60 seats, and uh, with the best scenario getting everything on time is 120 and it just that's the reality it's a finite space yeah. do you wish you opened a bigger place no no the size is perfect i love that it's intimate it's... and when the weather is better we it's not going to be secret anymore but the front patio we don't offer it for uh, on, on reservation so our neighbors know that there is availability they come if the kitchen can accommodate yeah. because kitchen is also small and cannot accommodate 200 people yeah. if the kitchen is can can take it we have seats in front which is very pretty and we sit our and this is when it becomes a real neighborhood joint which yeah. i i intended to be a neighborhood spot not yeah. a destination restaurant yeah, it's nice when you have both and you can accommodate both. It's yeah. kind of a, a high tightrope wire act. Exactly, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the cuisine is Iranian or Persian and you write in the introduction to your book about what the difference is in terms of the timeline and I love this beautiful writing in the book. Uh, what in your in your terms is the flavor profile of, of, of Iranian Persian cuisine? Uh, it's a tough question, I realize, but I think you're up for answering it. Yeah. If I just have to pick one, there are a lot of, but I would go straight to sour. Yes. The sour note that is so distinctively Persian, and we all crave so much for it. Right now is the season. It's a season for fresh uh, plums. They are sour, mm -hmm. and we even put more salt on them. Or uh, fresh almonds, again, they are they're kind of tart and, and sour. And when it's summer, it's uh, sour cherry season. Uh, I'm a little upset because they started genetically doing something to them that they are not so sour mm. anymore. And it's really annoying. The cherries. Yeah. The cherries. Yep, yep, yep. In Iran, they, they're still quite sour. So sour is the prime note of our cuisine. But there's another also level, and a little bit underneath, is sweet and sour, mm. which is the only I've seen it, we have a culinary term for it. It's called malas. Mm. It doesn't exist, to my knowledge, in any other culinary literature I have read, um, which is a, when you say this is malas, means it's a perfect balance of sweet and sour. It's just the perfect balance. And I describe it in my food, in, in my book, about the few dishes that you have to get to that perfect balance of sweet and sour. And that's also objective. I love that term, molass, molass. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about coffee in that term. It's why I love coffee. It's like that when you have that perfect sweetness and sour note of a coffee or anybody's cooked any kind of, um, you know, I mean, lemonade, making lemonade. You think about that balance. And, and I, you really opened my mind just by talking to you because of that balance of sweet and sour. Is there a dish that you create at Sofre that you feel is the balance? Yeah, all my dishes. I go for, <laughs> I go for bad. Not all my dishes, but at Sofre I have uh, like a beef stew, 
which is sour and sour note all the way to the highest point possible. Yeah. But then there is a dish also, the the duck fesenjun, I call it, which is the, the pomegranate uh, walnut duck sauce we have. That is a perfect balance of sweet and sour for me. It's just like, it's a, it's a tartness of a pomegranate, but it's not enough for me. So sometimes I even add lemon juice. In Iran, we have different grades of pomegranate molasses from wild ones that are super sour to the local, like normal pomegranates that are themselves, pomegranates are perfectly balanced. When you have like a well-ripened, ready Mm. pomegranate, itself is perfect balance of sweet and sour. So yeah, for now, I I can also, my tahini date salad in the book is another example of a perfect balance of sweet and sour I feel you've just said something. The pomegranates of uh, in the in the Middle East um, are different than the ones we're going to get in the states. There's yeah. different varieties, and it's just like a freshness. Yeah. Um, you started the restaurant at 59. Before that, you had a successful career. You you ran uh, your own business, a printing business, and I'd just like to get a sense. Um, what was that trajectory like? Run doing a printing business and then deciding to open a restaurant. Well, there was a 25-year gap between this. Okay, okay. So <laughs> I had, I had, uh, I had the print business. My background is law. Yeah. I studied law. Then I studied sociology. Then marketing research. So I've basically a lot of moving around. And so then, printing, it started at printing. Printing and- was a making money venture. I was manager at a print shop. He saw that I was very good at it. Mm-hmm. There was a offer to have my own business. I, a young entrepreneur, I was only 28. I grabbed the opportunity and I opened my own business. I did well. Uh, I work hard, you know, but my heart wasn't in it. Like I couldn't yeah. finish fast enough the day's work. So I run home and cook our dinner. I was at that time, I got also married mm-hmm. and, uh, or every night as, as we were eating our dinner in my mind, in a slow cooker, I was preparing our tomorrow's dinner, Yeah, the night after dinner. So it's, uh, it was very clear that I won't last in that printing situation. Food was more driving food, you every food day. Food yeah, every yep, day. Yep. And, uh, around the time, after eight years, I kind of was in a situation that I could sell the business. And I was thinking, I'm going to open a little cafe in East Village. Mm. Uh, back then, my budget and my mindset was a cafe. That's all I could think mm-hmm. of. And I was living in East Village at that time. What, where, where at? Um, 7th Street and Avenue A. That's I lived at 132. Yeah. 132 East 7th above Niagara. Yeah. I lived there for three years. Yeah. 7A, I was living above the 7A, the, the iconic restaurant. We were I, across the street from each other. What, what years were you there? From 1987 to 95. Yeah. Out wow. at, at that time. And Beautiful er, time to be in these. Amazing time to be there. Yeah. And so I was ready in my mind, looking at some shops, thinking about menu, that I found out I was pregnant with twins mm. and closed the chapter. Yeah. And I became a stay-at-home mom for until... Sofra opened. So until Sofra opened and, and, and your kids were, were a little oh, older? Much older. They, the kids, uh, this Sofra was supposed to be a project when they go to college. They went to college. They came out of college, graduated, and Sofra still wasn't opening. My gosh. It, it really, everything took so much longer. And uh, yeah, but I never lost hope or perspective or love for what I am doing right now. Did you know what you were getting into when you decided to open Sofra? No, no, no. I'm glad I, you didn't lie because no, I feel like anyone no, would. <laughs> no, no, I had no idea. People often ask me, is it like harder than you thought? I'm like much harder than I ever envisioned, yeah. envisioned but yeah. also much more gratifying than I have ever envisioned. So if if I look back to that young Nassim, I would do it all over again. I love that to hear that. I mean, the gratitude. When you, when you work like one of these long days, as you said, on a Tuesday, you get to go home and you're like, man, I really worked. Yeah, but then there's also Epsom salt and all that stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then you take care of the, the feet and then you go and do it again oh because my gosh. it's so amazing. You write in the book how um, women set the tone in the household, in an Iranian household. What does that mean? And particularly, how does that mean in, in reference to the food? In a yeah, in a patriarchal society like Iran and most cultures, actually, even here to some extent, yeah. you would 
you would see the men everywhere. You, they are the ones who sign contracts. They, you know, they run the money, all of that. But then when you scratch the surface, you go inside is, or at least the family, the woman I grew up with, my grandmother had to just look at my grandfather and he would not continue his sentence. Mm. And I always wondered what kind of power that she hold? Like what, what, what is she doing? She managed the home. She managed the tone of the house. She uh, welcomed the guests. She managed the money, the economy of the home. Mm-hmm. We, my grandparents didn't have a whole lot of money, but they were all fed. We were all fed well. There were always like plenty on a table. And that was your grandmother's doing? All my grandmothers. Like one of them was a symbol, a humble farmer. And she would just not stopping from 5 a.m. making bread to like her yogurt. That's why I'm doing. I'm I'm making bread every Mm -hmm. day in her honor. And it's in the book. Um, Just the men are absolutely necessary. You respect them. You make sure that they are respected in front of especially other men. But when it comes to the direction of the house, women are the queen of the house. And, and, And also in terms of cooking, these women have kept our culture and not only Iran, look at across the globe, women in the famine, mm-hmm. in the times of war, in the times of difficulty, who keeps the... They're the glue. They are, exactly. They are the one that keep the cultures thriving and sustaining mm. and, and, and moving forward. So, yeah. Masim, those are great, beautiful thoughts. I appreciate you sharing. And I'd like to know, uh, when you get... Let's talk about the book because... You know, the recipe list is like the foundation of uh, of a book. And I wonder how you came up with the selection of recipes. Uh, was it restaurant recipes or was it from your family and your background? How do you decide what to put in the book? I, I thought of I had so much more. I had to like yeah. get rid of so much. There's and second books. There's third sorry. books. There's more books. <laughs> yeah, but I had so much. But I, first of all, I had to go how, why I section the book like that. Yeah. By what I think is the most important thing. Bread. Yeah. Rice. Dairy. If you look at the sections, it goes like that. Because not we always don't want to have like fancy food. When I go home sometimes, like at 11 o'clock at night, I have fabulous yogurt and a fabulous bread and dinner is, that is a dinner or a plain white rice and you put, add a little bit of yogurt oh, and yeah. that's a meal. Um, but so that's how I decided to even section the book. And then when it comes to what goes in every section, I, there is a section called Osh. It's a new concept for a uh, non-Persian audience. Mm. It's, a, it's it Essentially, it's a thick soup of mm-hmm. ton of stuff. It's one bowl that feeds the family. There are at least 40 oshes that I know of. I don't have recipe of all of them. I haven't cooked all of them, but I definitely know of 40 to 45, I think even 45 that I know of. How do I choose these oshes? How do I represent uh, this? I serve one at Sofre, Oshreshte. That is a noodle stew with a lot of vegetables. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a complete meal. If you eat that, it nourishes you. What's it's the thickening agent in an osh? How does that work exactly? It's the, it's the slow cooking, yeah. ton of onions and garlic, and also whey. That is a so it's whey. So, whey. so these dishes, are, are these mostly vegetarian is yeah. osh? Yeah. yeah. They can be also non-vegetarian. Yeah. There are oshes that they have meat addition, but the beauty of them is you you take away the meat, uh, and I do often. I don't want to eat so much, consume so much meat, especially yeah. red meat. The flavor is so packed full with yeah. herbs and beans and whey, and, or some of them are made with pomegranate molasses. Some of them yeah. are made with sour grape extract. It's the list goes on. And you and eat on. it with rice and pita or no, rice no. and bread? No. By itself is a complete meal. That's cool. They all yep. have everything you need from the protein comes from the beans, the vitamins, the nutrients come from the, all the vegetables, and there is a thickening, always an agent, either a noodle or a rice or a bulgur or yeah. something. Why is rice so important to Iranian cuisine? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. I wish I knew, but rice wasn't so important. Bread was the main right. stable of the country up until... Iran became very rich um, in terms of Iran 
was a fertile land and bread was the staple. That's why in every city, in every village, we have the local bread bakery, yeah. bakery and the local, particular local bread or breads, uh, variation of it. Breads you eat is semi-sweet for the morning. Breads you eat with your ash or whatever. But then as the country got richer and the population grew, rice became more prominent. Rice used to be a court dish. Mm-hmm. That's why our, rich, our rices are so elaborate. They're not just white rice. They're like so many variations. Packed Multi-grain with, rices, lots of different um, vegetables and herbs in the rices. Yeah. So I many. love this chapter. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's great. It's so many. And again, rices, I also, I could have put another 30 special rices, but um, they were very elaborate because they were court and party or wedding or special events. But now rice is still is like one of the cheap grains. So it's becoming even more Mm -hmm. prominent. It's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's a a cool history and and the transition from, well, there's obviously still very much a bread culture, but the more rice dishes and you have a huge chapter there. But the funny thing is, that although it's uh, the new generation eats a lot of rice, but the older generation, my grandfather, who's no longer alive, he always had a side of bread next to his rice plate, and he would make a little like uh, almost like a plate, like a spoon, and picked up his rice with the bread. God so. love that man. God love that man. <laughs> so, that is the best thing. Rice and bread. Come on. Yeah. Like so, yeah. We, we we get shamed into not loving rice and bread as American culture and American culture. Yeah. So rice and bread. Double yeah. double starch. Um, I, speaking of rice, when I dined, I had the the little mini tadig uh-huh. with the fried pita, the fried bread with yeah. it. Wow. Yeah. Love that dish. How did you conceive that as the chef? How did you think of that through like doing a baby tadig? It's, tadig, I think of this grand gesture, but in the restaurant format, you're doing a small version. Necessity. Yeah. Necessity. It's like um, when, yeah, the necessity. I do not like to make fake tadik. You can make fake tadik. I've seen it in lots of recipes. Uh, you you know. can make fake tadik. I, to me, everything has to be as is. And then when it's only little, makes it even more special because you only just have a tiny little thing and you savor it more. Yeah. Imagine if I had given you a big platter of that greasy pita bread. I would have been happy. Yes, but at the end, your stomach wouldn't be. No. And at the end, the end of the day. The next day, you wouldn't feel it as something that delicate and special. I didn't think about all of that. I just simply have a certain size of a pan, pot, yeah, and I have a certain number of the people, yeah. and I want to see how I can stretch. And usually by 8.30, 8.45, we run out. And so many angry Iranians come early. I'm sorry, I won't do fake tadik. I just don't. How do your Iranian customers think about your restaurant? I've, I've asked this for Korean chefs, I've asked this for Chinese chefs, I've asked this for, you know, German chefs. Yeah. Uh, very good now. We have a reputation. We are almost like the Disneyland version of, like, they, they come and it's like, <laughs> the, if especially I'm there, yeah. photo. You work then, the room and love it. It's it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I love it. I yeah. just, I, I really, truly enjoy. And they come to, to meet me and I would mm-hmm. love to greet them. In the beginning, I was apprehensive about uh, Iranian women of my age because I know how difficult I am and God helped me like <laughs> encounter others. <laughs> and to my surprise, they were the ones who welcomed me and what I do. It's slightly different what I do with what they do. But they also understand the depth of flavors. And at the end of the day, they saw that I give everything I have and I know. And I think it was extremely well received by them. Once you get the approval of approval yeah. of Iranian mothers, oh. you are good to go. I've heard this <laughs> from other cultures and other chefs. Yeah. Future projects. You're working on some things. Yeah. I have to imagine. Yeah. What's the official line? There is a Sofre Cafe coming up. I heard. Uh, sometime, hopefully, God helps New York City. They should help us a little bit I more. I think. You mean with permitting, getting yeah, gas? Yeah, with permitting your, gas. Yeah, it's, it's awful. It's awful. So yeah. hopefully as soon as they let us go, we are ready to go. DOB stuff or is it with uh, it's gas? It's so many things. So <laughs> all the above. From the construction side to the... Anyway, Is yeah. it near Sofre in Prospect it's, Heights? Yeah, it's very close. It's Great. just literally across the street. Nice. That is for sure Great. is coming up. And also the book. I'm excited to do 
pop-ups and to do demos. I yeah. love to share my food with a larger audience. Yeah. So that's that's a full-time it's, job too. It's, oh, this it's you're getting busy here with the book, and yeah. it's beautiful. I'll link to it in the show notes. We asked all guests on today's podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to write this book, Nassim, what would that book be? I know you just have written a book too, so this is a challenging question. I would have uh, take a year off of everything I do here, and I would go with a couple of teams to really support me and travel to every nooks and cronies of Iran mm -hmm. and gather. I already have a lot, but I really don't think, I think I just scratched the surface and collect all these ancient recipes, food, but then it's not just that. I would hire the most talented creative director and mm -hmm. photographer to truly document it. Many people have done things like that, but it's always because of the budget, because yeah. of the, it's been shortchanged. So you want that. a full year to travel through Iran with your team? Yeah. I hope that happens. I hope so, hope too. we can make that work. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Nassim Malkani, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much, really. Thank you. It was lovely. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 